The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Australian Politics Weekly. I'm Catherine Murphy, Deputy Political Editor of Guardian Australia. It's great to be with you in the middle of week four of this election campaign and we're officially on the downhill run. Yay! Thank goodness for that. <laughs> the Liberal Party have launched their campaign in Brisbane, but of course we're yet to see their costings. Labor, meanwhile, slogging out there in the trenches. A complication for Kevin Rudd's campaign has been the worsening situation in Syria. Later, we'll be talking campaign strategy with Mark Texter, King of the Pollsters. It'll be very interesting to get his take on where the campaign is currently at. Also, we're going to head to the bush to look at the campaign from a regional perspective. But as always, let's kick things off today with Guardian Australia's political editor, Lenore Taylor. Here I am again. (laughs) Thank you for stopping by. Let's start with the Libs. They had their official campaign launch on Sunday. There was the Party Faithful, the Liberal alumni, John Howard, the family, the girls. Here's some of what Tony Abbott had to say. This election is about making a great country even better. And that starts with changing the worst government in our history. I will spend the next two weeks reassuring Australians that there is a better way. But Mr Rudd, he will spend the next two weeks trying to scare you about what might happen if he doesn't keep his job. Lenore, you were there on the spot in Bris Vegas. General thoughts? Well, I think Tony Abbott really said it himself in that grab. This was all about reassurance. It was all about sealing the deal with the voters. I think it's fair to say that Australian voters are a bit underwhelmed by both leaders on offering this campaign. And they didn't exactly warm to Tony Abbott since he became leader in 2009. So I think the coalition is now at the point where they have to get that final message through. Tony Abbott can be trusted. He's up to the job. He's not scary. He's not old-fashioned. He's not anti-women. He's brought up those lovely daughters. They think he's a daggy old netball dad. He's got a lovely team around him. John Howard thinks he's great. See, it's all good. It's at the all good phase of nearly getting over the line. Yes, the all good transition indeed. There's just over a week to go and picking up on some of your observations there. There's been so much small target in this election, particularly from Abbott. Are we any clearer, so close to polling day, what sort of Prime Minister he'll be? No, no, we're not. That's the crazy thing about this entire campaign. Despite Labor's best efforts to portray Tony Abbott as some kind of crazed economic dry who's going to cut services and close schools and, you know, end hospitals as we know it, I think the fear inside the coalition is much more that he'll be the opposite, that he's not an ideologue, that he's imposed upon them something other than what they would prefer to have in a leader, that he's too cautious, that he won't go hard enough. And I think after the election, those tensions are all going to play out inside the coalition. Before the election, they've really papered them all over. And so many things are going to go to review, like the banking system, the tax system, renewable energy policy, the commission of audit into the whole of the public service. All of those things remain uncertain and unclear. We don't know where their savings are. They still haven't released them. So we're really heading into an election campaign without a clear idea of what the coalition will offer other than 
you know, trust that they should be trusted. Well, and that they're not the other guy. And that they're not the other guy, which is really the main point of the whole campaign. Mm, Seems to be their top line. We're not Labor. So we have to talk about paid parental leave, still a big issue in the campaign, still quite dominant. Does anybody in the coalition, apart from Tony Abbott, like this scheme? The first question. And given the dissent and the argument around it, can he actually deliver it? If Tony Abbott leads the coalition to the kind of victory that appears likely at the moment, then he's going to have enormous authority and he will use that authority to push this policy through, even though many people on the coalition don't like it, including the Liberal dries who think it's too expensive, the Nationals who think it discriminates against um, lower earning and stay-at-home mothers and others besides. Whether it can get through the Senate in its current form is depends on another whole set of equations in terms of the Senate outcome in the ballot. But I think Tony Abbott will push it through and he'll use the authority that is vested in him by his victory to do that. And it was kind of interesting too how he used the campaign launch in Brisbane to really back himself in and uh, in and amongst the his, the critics of the scheme in essence. He, he left himself no room to move. That's right. And even Malcolm Turnbull, who this week sort of damned it with somewhat faint praise, had to then sort of turn around and turn around and correct himself fulsomely. <laughs> Very generous, other people say. Um, now, let's turn our attention to Kevin Rudd and his week. He pulled out or pulled away, really, from the campaign trail to focus on the unfolding events in Syria. And presumably this global situation for a person like Kevin Rudd is actually quite complicated to manage in the middle of the campaign. He sort of tried to tie the international events to some domestic events and position himself in the national security space, but it went a bit off the rails, didn't it, when a spat erupted between himself and Barry O'Farrell about mm. where naval assets may be headquartered. What's your verdict on on that uh, on that yesterday? A big call, as Kevin says, or big gaffe, as I suspect the TV news will say? Well, I get the idea of the incumbent using national security and the whole gravitas of office to their advantage, and the situation in Syria obviously is incredibly serious and any government has to deal with that even if they're in an election campaign. But this whole Navy moving north shtick is really a bit weird, I think. I mean, seriously, <laughs> nothing is moving anywhere, okay? They're going to have a task force to think about maybe moving the Navy somewhere by 2030. 30. I mean, this is a party that may well not be around in two weeks. So... <laughs> You know, that's why it's a big call. Well, yeah, big la la call. I mean, really, it, it, it is bizarre. It's obviously to feed into what will be the focus of Labor's campaign for the next two weeks, and that is jobs. And of course, after Kevin Rudd had his small altercation with Barry O'Farrell by Sydney Harbour, he got straight on the plane and went to the port of Brisbane, where, of course, he could say that this could, in fact, one day maybe you know, when we're all grandmothers, yes. create jobs in Brisbane. Speaking of the never-never, well, not quite, actually, Sunday, Labor has uh, the campaign launch. Obviously, it's Kevin Rudd's uh, big day, big moment. Julia Gillard very kindly has decided not to show up, make it difficult for him. What can Labor do? The narrative is now essentially that uh, they're behind, they're sandbagging, can't get there. Is there any Shazam at the campaign launch that could change uh, Labor's fortunes? 
I think what they will try to do is the same sort of twofold approach that they're on now. One is to put every positive announcement through the prism of jobs and job security, which I assume their focus groups are telling them is an important issue and one that plays well for them, and to hammer the unaffordable paid parental leave scheme as the sort of emblem of Tony Abbott being a risk. I don't think they think any longer that, you know, they're on track for a victory. And of course uh, we can get a little bit of a precursor perhaps for some of that messaging in tonight's People's Forum at Rooty Hill. Mark Texter is a corporate and campaign strategist. He's managing director of an international consulting firm and, to put it mildly, he's into polls. For over 30 years, he's studied the data. He's assisted campaigns for political leaders from Campbell Newman to Tony Abbott to John Howard to Boris Johnson. He joins me on the phone from Sydney now, Mark. I want to start our conversation today, if I may, uh, with the debate that we've seen, particularly over this past week, about the mm. relative merits of different types of polling. Yes. We've seen some people uh, objecting to the use of marginal seats, robo-polls, and suggesting that national polls are more accurate. What do you think about this? If you consider Murray Good's paper to the second decimal point published after the last election, his conclusion was most of the polls were mostly accurate, and they mostly are. I think you start getting into trouble when you start dealing with seats where naturally, because of the margin um, that they are in the pendulum, you're only dealing with a 1% or 2% margin, in which case, to overcome that margin and overcome the fact that you have a natural sample error, you need thousands in that poll. So while a poll nationally with a 1,000 or so people might be accurate for the national result, you really start to push the boundaries of accuracy when you start doing a four or five hundred per seat in marginal seats. Mm-hmm. And and why? Just because of the way that the samples gathered, or what makes them less accurate? Well, but look, look, there are lots of different ways. It's rather archaic to be arguing about the way you gather your sample. The problem just comes in basic maths. If you have a a seat that can be won or lost by you know just one or two percent. You literally need a 1,000 or so people in order to make uh, that accurate. Most of the marginal seat polls that have been done are less than that. And that's not to say that they won't be accurate in the end, but to be absolutely sure that the margin you're picking in a poll is less than the natural difference between the two parties in that seat, you need many thousands of people to make absolutely sure. Mm -hmm. And this is a ridiculous question, I realise, to ask a professional pollster, but are there too many polls in Australia and are there too many people writing about polls who haven't got a clue what they're talking about? Many polls are over-interpreted. One of the problems professional party pollsters have with polls these days is that the polls are wide but shallow. Look, they can tell you fairly accurately what's going on in the committee in terms of votes, but most of them don't tell you why. And so what happens afterwards is there's a couple of percentage point difference in the polls, the newspapers or media outlet that pay for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for that polling series to come out is not going to say, actually, this poll's a waste of time because, you know, nothing much has happened, so they have to write a story. (laughs) And uh, therefore they have to invent stuff that happened during that week in order to explain the small difference that's happened. And often nothing happened. And it's almost Python-esque to say uh, when dramatically nothing happened. And sometimes 
nothing happens. <laughs> and of course, that doesn't excite Twitter a lot. Let's talk about interpreting polls because uh, that's what sets a good pollster apart from a less good pollster. Your signature, I suppose, as a pollster is is your specialisation in values-based campaigning and we've seen quite a bit of this in this campaign. In terms of your research, I'm not after state secrets, Mark, I'm just after general perceptions. At the values level, where are voters in 2013? What are they looking for from their political leaders? Look, we've had a period of multiple economic, political um, and social uncertainties. Changes in the fabric of our society, changes in the fabric of our media, changes in the fabric of our politics, changes in the fabric of our economy. And so what uh, the antidote to that, if you like, is certainty, which means a couple of things. Methodological, consistent in your behaviour. So what a lot of media and punditry on Twitter and elsewhere do is they get into the minutiae, what I unkindly call uh, uh, family, family you know, blog, family, uh, family, family, family podcast, blog, family podcast. So, so they get passionate about small things, um, but you have to look at the broader signals. So, when someone is consistent, when someone communicates a clear message, it's not about whether, just about whether agr- people agree or disagree with it, that message which is the classical media poll. It's about what you say and the consistency of that message. For well, example, I, I, I mightn't agree with what Tony Abbott or Kevin Rudd say, but I will make a judgment about how consistent they are in the way they say it or the way they prosecute it. Well, uh, it, and in an uncertain world, that's very, very important. In a way, it's 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 been quite interesting in, in that in that Tony Abbott has kind of styled himself as the anti-vision candidate. In a way, he's the doing candidate, and this is reinforced uh, in in pictures of his day, and of course in what he's saying. Um, well, I, I've got to say, Catherine, in I've been doing this twenty five, thirty years. I'm not quite sure what a vision is, um, except <laughs> well, a lot don't... of people want this. I uh, want this mythical vision. When people talk about policies and vision, what they want is more definite. So I want some markers that I can keep you account to. A new way isn't a marker. Uh, We will stop the boats or we will uh, reduce waste is a marker. You can keep someone to account against that standard. And that gives you some structure in an uncertain world. And this is the most important thing in modern politics to understand not the minutiae of whether someone's, quote, subtly changed their position on an issue, according to the gallery, but whether someone is prepared to tell you their direction. It's seemingly an, an, an appetite for verbs, <laughs> for doing for doing words and consistency in action, as you say, seems to be a campaign theme and it's well, certainly... I, yeah, it's, it's a verb, but it's also a goal. I mean, you can judge whether somebody has brought down debt or their performance on taxes. It's very hard to determine. For example, the gallery, and for the right reasons, might be, you know, might have a focus on you know, uh, what uh, the gallery called costings. Uh, But what the public are after is a sense that you know where the savings will be had because, frankly, not all of us are accountants. I mean, I run a very large company, but even as a person experienced in profit and loss sheets, it's very hard to determine some of the ambiguities in accountancy. So 
yes, it's about costings, but what it's really about is does this person have the ability and the focus in order to save me money? That's what it's really all about. I notice a lot of the gallery folk out there pretending to be amateur economists and accountants, they don't have the skill set. A lot of people don't have the skill set. So all you can do at the end of the day is judge people on their history, whether they have or not balanced budgets, and also uh, get a sense about whether they're uh, determined to cut down on waste or whether they're competent enough to find the money necessary to pay for their program. And and do you find that the climate is materially different uh, in terms of voters' expectations and attitudes than it was in, in 2010? Well, this is a strange thing. The 2010 campaign has matured but not finished. In other words, you know, a lot of the concerns that existed in 2010, the issue agenda actually hasn't changed much and a function of that is the political rhetoric and message set hasn't changed much. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because a lot of the issues that are in dispute in this campaign have effectively not been resolved. They're still pregnant issues. So we're sort of playing to conclusion, and we must play to conclusion, sadly. How's it going in Campaign HQ? Have you all got clean socks? We have. Uh, there's still a lot of people walking around in in bare, in bare feet and uh, without I want, shoes. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Texter, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The Guardian. This is Australian Politics Weekly and I'm Catherine Murphy. Lenore is back with us and I'd like to welcome along fellow Guardian journalist and commentator Gabby Chan. Gabby lives on a farm outside of Canberra and has a strong interest in regional issues. She's outside the Beltway and proud, aren't you, Gabs? Loud and proud. (laughs) It's great to have you with us this week. To both of you, we witnessed the spectacle at the press club of Catter versus Palmer. Quite something. I thought volume high facts kind of optional. What were your takes on this outing, Lenore? Do Do you want to start? Well, its entertainment value was very high. (laughs) Uh, It was interesting that they seem to agree with each other on many things, even though we know they've got quite strong elements of policy disagreement. And if either one of them gets a candidate in the Senate, holy moly, that could make things fun in the next term. (laughs) Well, you'd love to work at Hansard, wouldn't you? Not. Um, Gabs? Highly entertaining, obviously. Um, The interesting thing about these two guys is while they appear very comic to us, they actually get a bit of traction in the bush. People are cranky about this election, where I come from, and they feel they're being ignored, they're underwhelmed by both leaders of the major parties. And when they hear policies like... Clive Palmer's, which is to reduce or abolish every tax known to man. <laughs> Thumbs they up They kind of go for it, you know. <laughs> People in the bush aren't silly. They must know that that's not possible, right? Well, I wonder if it's just a version of a protest vote. Right. So they know that they're not going to get in or they think they, they're not going to get in, but it's just an up yours to the major parties. So the parties. electoral version of the rude finger. Yeah, basically. But there's also, I think one of the things that we're going to find out, obviously, on election night is whether or not uh, Bob Catter and Clive Palmer have been under-polled 
in a lot of these surveys and there is a school of thought that their vote is depressed in a lot of these opinion surveys because of how how difficult it is essentially to poll in regional areas but that's a whole other podcast let's think about issues it's interesting what you say gabs about the turnoff factor in this election what do you think rural voters are are interested in in terms of policy issues rural voters are always interested in hip pocket um, issues, economic issues, but also issues like health and education that directly affect them. So in rural areas, that's things like school funding. It's things like support for students going away to study at university in particular. It's health issues like mental health support and also treatment issues for cancer, hence the announcements we've seen on cancer funding thus far in the election. Things like going away and not being at home to have your treatments where you spend weeks and weeks, if not months, having cancer treatments, that always is a big issue in the bush. The other issues there are the live export is still white hot. People are cranky about that. And if there's one thing that the bush has been good at is utilising social media to share stories, essentially, and some of them are real, and I'm sure some of them are made up, but it's to share memes the way that everyone else does on social media. It gets around and no one challenges it because essentially the major parties, on the coalition side, they take the bush for granted. On the Labor side, they don't even bother. They run university students. So those sorts of stories go around. The other thing, of course, is the sale of Grain Corp, which is a huge issue. Yeah, well, we'll get to foreign investment because that is a really fascinating issue, I think. It's a strange thing in this election campaign that I have this sense that we don't quite cover the stories that are the real stories and we get sucked into the kind of whole national debate and narrative. Take, for example, the fact that it's pretty obvious that the National Party are going to pick up seats in this campaign. I think we could, you know, if you had a lazy 50, you'd, you'd put it on that outcome. Yet there hasn't really been much scrutiny or coverage of the Nats campaign. How do you think that's gone down in the bush? I think the um, people in rural Australia are focused on their local media, which is why the National Party tend to look at getting stories placed in local media rather than worrying about state and nationals. I actually disagree with them on that slightly because I think the Bush would have more leverage if they actually got a run in state and national media and got some issues talked about. But generally, you know, they're focused locally, so it, it doesn't matter that it's, much. Yeah, it's all mm. below the radar. It and, is. And we were, I think it's interesting, Lenore, we used to devote resources uh, to the Wombat Trail, Correct. all of that sort of stuff. But, but is it just a question of resources that we don't cover it now or is it more complex than that? I think it's a couple of things. It is that most news organisations have diminished resources, certainly newspapers, because, I mean, all of the newspapers would send someone on the Wombat Trail. They used to get a little tie at the end, which showed you that they're mostly <laughs> blokes. And, um, and, you know, it was a really fun gig. It was a great... People had a great time on the Wombat Trail and it was really interesting and there were all the sort of interesting policy issues 
issues. So it's partly that newspapers have fewer resources now, but it's also that the resources that they do have are spread more thinly because there's all these other things that they need to do, like live blogging, like dealing with all the things that are are thrown up through social media. And more than before, with the rapid news cycle, the campaign is sucked up into all these sort of crazy one-hit wonders like, you know, sex appeal or like or the makeup artist or the gaff all these cycle in little, essence, yeah. little things in the gaff cycle which used to happen but because the, 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 the media cycle moved more slowly didn't kind of explode with such force. Now, that, all of that stuff takes up resources and there is really less resources going into policy debates in general and certainly less into the wombat trail and the, mm, the uh, issues that affect the National Party. Yeah. Notwithstanding the fact that we're not uh, covering ourselves in glory uh, collectively and covering it, there do appear to be some really interesting contests playing out. Uh, Indi looks really interesting. Gabs, you've been watching that. Uh, tell us what's going on there. Yeah, Indi looks fascinating and and. Partly because of the context of having the two country independents in the 43rd Parliament uh, who have been comprehensively whacked uh, around the ears by Conservatives for siding with the Labor government. So you've got that sort of context playing out. Those two independents, Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, are not running, they're retiring. So in some senses, some Conservatives are saying, well, we didn't get the chance to vote you out, which they're very cranky about. So into all of this wanders uh, Cathy McGowan. <laughs> She's into an independent, right? The independent in Sophie Mirabella's seat of Indi. Sophie has a, a margin of 9%. So you would think she would be fairly safe there, particularly with a swing on um, towards the coalition. But not so, it seems. Cathy's uh, a, a quality candidate. Uh, she's got experience in community engagement, so she knows how to mobilise people on the ground. She knows how to work personal relationships, which are so much more important in a bush seat. If I know someone who's got her sign in my in their paddock, I'm thinking, oh, well, that person trusts her and I trust that person. So, you know, I'll look at their policies or you know, engage with them a little bit more. And she is, I know, covering a lot of ground in that very large electorate. Mm, be interesting to see how that plays out and others and how the sort of independence fare at the end of this, the conclusion of this election generally. Now, issues... Um uh, we mentioned foreign investment, that's a big one. Uh, we've mentioned uh, Lenore tensions between Liberals and Nationals on paid parental leave, which brings us to this issue of how Tony Abbott, if he wins, is going to manage relationships within the co- within the coalition. So I'd like some playback from you guys on that. Gabs, what do you think? Well, I think it's it's going to be so interesting with Tony Abbott there because he this PPL, the paid parental leave policy, is a sign that he, he's not so little government as a lot of the Liberals are. So that kind of equates more in line with the National Party, not to mention his close friendship, even though they have stand-up rows apparently with uh, Barnaby Joyce. (laughs) They were at school together. So they do have that background going back. Um, So I think it'll be really interesting and in a way it will reflect what sort of Prime Minister Tony Abbott may become, um, 
how much he's going to wade into that policy area that is more interventionist than the Liberal Party traditionally mm. is. Mm. Well, it's, it's defining for him and for the relationship potentially, Lenore. But at the same time, I mean, I agree with what Gabby just said, but at the same time there's also indications that the National Party will lose the trade portfolio uh, and that uh, and, and they're not happy about that, uh, which you know, sends the opposite signal or is a bit of a wink towards the dries in the Liberal Party that, you know, he's not ignoring them either. So I think it's going to be a balancing act for Tony Abbott. It'll be very interesting to see how he handles it. That's it for this week. You've been listening to Australian Politics Weekly from Guardian Australia. My thanks to polling guru Mark Texter. Thanks also to The Guardian's Gabby Chan and Lenore Taylor. The producer of this podcast is the lovely, patient and tolerant Mike Williams. I'm Catherine Murphy. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow me there at Murfaroo. Make sure you drop by my live politics blog each day and see how the campaign's are panning out. Next week on Australian Politics Weekly, it's the final countdown till polling day. Until then, I'm going to leave you with Henry, the family-first aspirant who is winning the internet. Provide and to share The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs>